Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme of the February 2024 issue is Organ Transplantation and Nutrition Support. Today, we want to focus on a paper entitled Nutrition Care for the Adult Post-Intestinal Transplant Patient, published in the February issue. Joining me today are two of the authors of the paper, Lindsay Dowen and Lisa Macha. Both are registered dietitians and advanced practice nutrition support clinicians with the Center for Gut Rehabilitation and Transplantation at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. So thank you, Lindsay and Lisa, for joining me today. So before we start our discussion, do either of you have any disclosures on this topic you'd like to share? And Lindsay, we'll start with you. No, I don't have any disclosures. Thank you. Lisa? I also do not have any disclosures. Thank you. So uh, I've read through your paper a few times, and I really encourage our readers to look through it. It has a lot of valuable information, but I want to jump into some additional questions that I thought of when I'm reading the paper. So Lindsay, let's start with you. So just to kind of provide some background for our audience, uh, can you kind of address the main causes of intestinal failure that lead to transplant? And also, what are the criteria for patients so that we know that they need transplant versus rehabilitation alone? So the main causes of intestinal failure include the loss of bowel length and surface area, and also dysfunction of the intestinal tract. So loss of the bowel length and surface area can include vascular occlusions, multiple bowel resections, and catastrophic surgical complications. Dysfunctions of the intestinal tract can include motility disorders, intrinsic bowel disease like IBD, radiation enteritis, and partial or complete bowel obstruction. In order for a patient to qualify for intestinal transplantation, the United States Center for Medicare and Medicaid put out guidelines that indicate specific criteria used to gauge an individual's candidacy. So these factors include intestinal failure associated liver disease, either impending or overt liver failure. Impending liver failure includes elevated bilirubin levels, elevated liver enzymes, progressive thrombocytopenia, or progressive splenomegaly. Signs of overt liver failure include portal hypertension, hepatosplenomegaly, hepatic fibrosis, or cirrhosis. Central venous access device-related thrombosis involving two or more central veins, and also frequent line infections. So this includes at least two episodes per year of systemic bacteremia requiring hospitalization or a single episode of line-related fungemia. This can also include episodes of septic shock or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Also, frequent episodes of severe dehydration, despite the use of parental support, is also one of the criteria that's used to gauge an individual's candidacy. So, Lindsay, I know that part of your role has to do with intestinal and nutrition rehab. So, what is the role of that intestinal nutrition rehab before transplant? And what are the goals in order to basically tune up a patient for getting a transplant? This is a great question because we feel like it really highlights the role of the dietitian and the management of some of these individuals. Although transplant is a wonderful life-saving procedure for some individuals, we have come across patients that have not exhausted all other medical therapies. So some of the nutrition rehab therapies that our dietitians use, along with medications such as anti-motility and anti-secretory medications or tegaglutide, have the ability to minimize stool output and lessen the burden of parenteral support. So some of the individuals that we come across have been able to be weaned from parental support just from rehab therapies alone and no longer go down the transplant route. 
However, when patients are getting worked up for an intestinal transplant, some patients are malnourished. A registered dietitian or a nutrition support clinician can assess the nutrition status of an individual during the pre-transplant evaluation. So one of the goals to tune up the patient for transplant is to either maintain a good nutrition status or improve upon their current status. This may be done with the use of parental support to ensure that the individual has adequate nutrition provision prior to surgery. And also given that most of our patients have high stoma output and are at risk for dehydration, maintaining adequate hydration to protect the kidneys is also very important. We also monitor the PM prescription to make sure we're doing all that we can to prevent long-term complications seen with parenteral nutrition, such as intestinal failure associated liver disease and metabolic bone disease. So that really kind of addresses a lot of the pre-transplant, but what are some of the post-transplant complications that you see your patients encountering and how do you address or adjust your nutrition therapy to deal with those complications? So once the patient is discharged from the hospital, our team will follow them in the outpatient setting with either our GI physicians or our surgical teams. We do see episodes of dehydration and electrolyte abnormalities now that patients are weaned from parenteral support. Some patients have persistent malabsorption, particularly those who do not have their native colon to use for better absorption of food and electrolytes. So depending on the severity, our first line of treatment will be adding oral supplementation of electrolytes and trace elements. We frequently supplement potassium, magnesium, phosphorus, bicarbonate, and then some trace elements like copper and zinc. So patients may need a one-time fluid bolus versus setting up outpatient infusions maybe two to three times weekly. And this may not be due completely to malabsorption, but to the side effects of some of the medications used in the post-transplant period, such as tacrolimus. Sometimes malabsorption may be due to infection or graft rejection. If it's due to graft rejection, diarrhea malabsorption can contribute to malnutrition if the symptoms persist long enough. In these cases, the patient may be restarted on parenteral support temporarily. However, in cases of severe rejection, people may become malnourished very quickly due to the severity of the inflammation. And in some cases, the intestinal mucosa may not fully regenerate and patients may find themselves back on full or partial parenteral support. That kind of leads me to the next question. So Lisa, what percent of your patients after transplant can become parenteral nutrition independent and what factors play into the success of the patients being able to support themselves with only oral nutrition? That's a really good question. That's something that we're always working on collecting our data to see the percentage. Our most recent publication from 2019 from our surgeons showed that 83% of the transplanted patients achieved nutrition autonomy, but that includes weaning from two feedings and also IV hydration. So I, I would say that the number is much higher. I think majority of the patients become PN independent after transplant, almost all of them. And some of the factors that play into the success immediately, it depends on the post-op course. You know, of course, if they have an ileus or chylosocytes, those patients take a little bit longer to wean. But in the long-term setting, it sort of depends on their level of absorption because the transplanted bowel doesn't absorb always perfectly because of the denervation of the bowel and the perfusion injuries that happen during transplantation, some patients have better absorption than others. And also if they have repeated episodes of acute rejection, 
Sometimes the valve doesn't regenerate back to baseline every time, so that can play a role. Also, people with underlying dysmotility as a reason for needing transplant tend to struggle more with motility symptoms in the post-transplant setting, and they may need pro-motility meds to help transition to an oral diet. What about, Lisa, then in the long term? What are some of those long-term post-transplant nutrition goals and, and therapies? One of our long-term post-transplant nutrition goals is for an individual to thrive and continue on a normal diet or as close to what is considered a normal diet as possible. Ideally, we'd like to see these patients well hydrated and able to engage in activities they typically enjoy and have enough energy to do so. Due to the as I was talking before about the denervation of the bowel and the perfusion injuries, sometimes the bowel doesn't absorb ideally, and therefore hydration and electrolyte derangements may be a long-term issue. So we tailor many of the nutrition recommendations and meds to the individual based on their need and based on their level absorption. Sometimes these patients struggle in the long-term with kidney issues because their anti-rejection meds can affect their kidneys. So they're not only struggling with hydration issues, but also the meds hurting their kidneys. And so occasionally in the long term, they end up on dialysis and need to be on a renal diet. But our long-term goals basically are to manage their stool output and make sure that they're maintaining their nutrition and their hydration in the long term. So I'm going to come back to both of you. So Lindsay, let's start with you and then go to Lisa. But I know you've both been in this field for quite a while. So what changes have you seen that have improved outcomes in your patients with intestinal failure and or transplant? Lindsay, have you answer first. Several new therapies have emerged to help improve the outcomes of these patients. So this includes the use of ethanol lock therapy, um, the use of mixed oil lipid emulsions, and also a newer medication to help improve intestinal absorption. So one of the reasons for hospital admissions for home PN patients is due to catheter-related bloodstream infection. The use of ethanol lock in this population has helped decrease the incidence of infection and has proved safe for patients and is also inexpensive. So this may help decrease infection risk and also helps to prevent the onset of intestinal failure-associated liver disease. Also, the use of mixed oil lipid emulsions have recently emerged for use in the U.S. They're safe for use, and they're generally well tolerated with our population. They have also shown improvement with cholestasis in studies when compared to their soybean-based counterparts. So with the use of the mixed oil lipid emulsions, your lipid provision can be increased to provide more calories from lipids, allowing for reduced dextrose calories, which also will help prevent IFAL or intestinal failure associated liver disease. Also, there's more meds coming out that are used to help improve absorption with patients with short bowel syndrome intestinal failure, namely the GLP-2 medications, which help to promote adaptation and improve absorption. And that'll help to minimize the amount of parental support needed and help minimize the incidence of bloodstream infections if they have days off of parental support. Some centers are exploring the use of the GLP-2 drugs in the post-transplant population to help stimulate blood flow 
and absorption and promote adaptation in the transplanted bowel um, just for used for short periods of time. So that's also something to look forward to in the future. Kind of as we wrap up and before we close, uh, do you guys have any other additional comments that you want to share with our listeners today? Sure. I think this topic is very important for our listeners and other clinicians to know where they can refer these types of patients. We list the facilities that offer intestinal transplant in our article for this reason. So I know from my experience, I didn't have any experience with this population before working at the clinic when I first started my career. And I definitely did not learn about this in by didactic schooling or internships. So these conditions do exist and smaller hospitals may not have the capacity to handle the extensive and multidisciplinary care that these individuals need. So it's really important to know how and where and to who to make the referrals to and to these institutions that specialize in the care of the intestinal rehab and transplant. So our team has seen patients that have come to us from hospice at other facilities, and we were able to provide life-saving surgical procedures and have done, these patients have done really well for themselves afterward. So I do think it's important for our listeners to know that when they do see these patients, you know, where they can refer them to if they're not able to provide the care that they need. I think that's a really important point because I do run into some of those and you guys are my people that I come to to ask questions. So I want to thank you, Lindsay and Lisa, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. I want to invite our listeners to learn more about this topic as well as other papers on organ transplantation and nutrition support and the February 2024 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you, Lindsay and Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for having us.